Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome Wall Street Journal NBA reporter and author of the great new book about the hot hand, Ben Cohen. We explore the science and mystery of the hot hand, the decades-long debate between academia and the sports world, how understanding the hot hand relates to coaching, decision-making, chance, human behavior, and much, much more. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter and YouTube for daily detailed breakdowns and sign up for our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate much of the best that we've seen throughout the week. And now, without further ado, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Ben Cohen. Years ago, Pat and I were both in Vegas, and we found ourselves at a, uh, a downtown casino playing $2 blackjack hands, and Pat got on a real heater and <laughs> was winning game after game after game of this blackjack and kept asking when we were going to be comped by the hotel, the whole thing. Still waiting. <laughs> yeah. I think the problem was the $2 blackjack. <laughs> the yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we were having a bunch of fun, you know, winning a very small amount of money, but feeling good about ourselves. And other people started coming over from other tables and kind of joining us. And there was this fun experience. And we attributed it to us just being, um, or Pat mostly, being on a heater and a great blackjack player. After reading your book about the hot hand and uh, chance and runs and streaks, that puts that kind of in question. So maybe to start with that in mind, talking about what the hot hand is and if Pat perhaps did have a hot hand or we just got extremely lucky at the Golden Nugget. Uh, well, that's a great question, and I don't want to do anything to um, dissuade Pat from thinking that um, the next time he goes to Las Vegas, he will have a similar outcome. Um, I, you know, the hot hand is this phenomenon that doesn't really have a singular definition. I kind of like to think of it as when success leads to more success. That's kind of the simplest way to think about it. Um, in basketball, and I know that you know both of you guys have seen it and probably felt it for yourselves in basketball, it's when you make one shot and then another shot and another shot and you feel more likely to make your next shot because you've just made a few in a row. You are in the zone. You're on fire, right? Um, but part of the reason I wrote this book is because this is a phenomenon that is not simply limited to basketball. It's really about human behavior and how we make decisions and how our minds work. And in some instances and in some industries, there is such a thing as the hot hand and we can take advantage. And in others, I'm sorry to say, probably like casinos, there really isn't. And um, what happens is mostly the product of luck and chance breaking our way and things that we cannot really control. In blackjack, you can a little bit. In roulette, you really can't, right? And so if you had been at the $2 roulette wheel and you had gotten hot and had this night that 
was so unforgettable that um, you managed to remember it despite everything else that happens in Las Vegas. Um, I probably would say that was just, you know, completely lucky and there's no way to replicate that. Maybe, you know, blackjack is a little bit more like basketball than roulette, but, but not really. And, you know, the real reason I wrote this book um, is because there has been this really fascinating saga, this fight to understand this idea, this phenomenon of the hot hand that has lasted for about 35 years now and involves some of the smartest people on the planet trying to wrap their minds around this really intuitive basketball phenomenon. I mean, it's an idea that you know spreads everywhere, but it's really rooted in sports. And that's kind of why I initially took on this project. And it led me in many different directions that I could never have anticipated. The book, like you just mentioned, goes in so many different directions, and it's just not about basketball, which I, I loved. I mean, it was really well-written, really intriguing book, um, but obviously has a bunch of implications for basketball. Our audience and people listening right now are going to be you know, mostly coaches, athletic directors, players, and I would uh, assume that most of our audience would agree with you that the hot hand is, is real or feels real. Um, but your book is really complex because it pulls back a lot of different layers. And like you mentioned, studies uh, from 1985 that disproved it and kind of had the, the hot hand fallacy. Could you maybe dive in a little bit more about how that fallacy kind of came to play? And also you mentioned, but how it was at odds with the basketball community at large. Sure. And, you know, there's a reason why the prologue and especially the first chapter of this book is entirely about basketball. And it's because it would be completely intellectually dishonest of me to not write about basketball while writing about the hot hand, because this phenomenon, even though it has been studied by Nobel Prize winners, right? I mean, really some of the brightest minds um, in economics and psychology and statistics and mathematics, um, it's always been rooted in basketball. There have been hundreds of scholarly papers about this idea. And the biggest ones, the ones that have moved the needle, have used basketball data and taken this sports phenomenon and applied it very widely. Um, so this really all started, this entire field of hot hand literature started in 1985 with the publication of this classic paper in the canon of behavioral economics. Um, and it's about the hot hand in basketball. And it's by these three psychologists, Tom Gilovich, Bob Malone, and the great Amos Tversky of Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, the two geniuses who really revolutionized psychology and economics and the way that we think about decisions. And what made this paper so classic was the really highly counterintuitive conclusion, which is that there is no such thing as the hot hand. It's simply a matter of our minds playing tricks on us. It is a figment of our imagination. And, you know, one of the things that um, was so alluring and seductive about this paper is that it includes a survey of basketball players and all of them to a man said, of course, the hot hand is real. I have felt it for myself. I have seen it. It's not only important to believe in the hot hand, but we should behave as if we believe in the hot hand. And there's a difference there, right? The question is, if someone is hot, should we change our defense to guard him? Should we change our plays and try to get him the ball? And what all of these um, college and professional players, guys who are experts, who have played thousands of hours of basketball said was, yes, like that is what I think a lot of us think. In fact, even after this paper came out, even after you know these geniuses told us that 
it's we probably shouldn't believe in the hot hand and it's more chance than it is skill basketball players still insisted that the hot hand was real it did not really change our minds um even 35 years after publication and so um this idea that is rooted in basketball um i think has really wide-ranging implications but um the fact that it is uh centered in basketball and the fact that we all sort of recognize it from basketball was just so interesting to me and it's why i mean the first chapter of this book is about steph curry and it's about the video game nba jam an overarching theme your book kept coming back to is that it's in our nature to find um we look at randomness and we we make patterns out of it. Why is that? So um, so this point in the book, um, really this whole like strain of thinking comes from not the psychologists and the, the economists who have looked at the hot hand, but the evolutionary psychologists and biologists who looked at the hot hand, not in humans, um, but in monkeys, right? So they have found that this, um, our human belief in seeing patterns where they may or may not exist was evolutionarily ingrained into us over the course of a very, very long time, longer than, than any of us have been alive or you know, even um, our ancestors were alive. And um, it was because nature back then especially was clumpy. So when you went looking for food, when you were foraging, there were rewards for seeing patterns and chasing this idea of the hot hand because food did come in bunches, right? So if you found one or two or three trees with some fruit on it, chances are like a fourth was around there. That's not quite how basketball works or how the world works today. And yet our minds still work that way. Like we, we are um, conditioned to look for these patterns. So the reason why we all swear the hot hand is real, I think, is because we have felt it, we have seen it, it makes us happy, right? Like we all know that really pleasurable sensation, um, but our, our minds are, are conditioned to look for patterns also. And when we see them, we recognize them and we assign all sorts of causes and explanations to them. So we might think, oh, I had like a, a bowl of cereal this day and um, I got hot and so I'm gonna start doing that again, even, even if there's really no causation. Um, and I think that is part of the mystery of all of this. Like, why do people get hot when they do? And is there any way to predict when that's going to happen and to try to take advantage? And that's one of the questions that I explore, I think, in this book. You talked about 1985, that first research paper that said it was a fallacy. But now within the last few years, there's more research that has better data coming out from the MBA analytics that is now disprove the earlier research and kind of points to the fact that the hot hand is in fact real and if i'm wrong on that please correct me but can you talk about now the current model and what that means yeah it turns out we were not crazy for thinking that there might be such a thing as the hot hand and that our intuition maybe didn't lead us astray in this particular case and you know that's that, that i think that's sort of the fun of the book it, it sort of starts with something we all feel to be true that the hot hand is real then we are told that it's not and then we're told again that actually maybe it is and maybe we were right this whole time and what has changed uh, in the last few years there were two really landmark papers one that has to do with crazy math and um and statistical probabilities and like this very subtle quirk of a bias that 
I have found doesn't really make for great podcasting. You kind of need to like read about it and and try to wrap your mind around it. And even then it's like still hard to understand. But the other one does. The other one comes from a team of Harvard researchers, Harvard undergraduates actually, like college kids in their dorms who got access to SportView data um, I think six or seven years ago now, like right when those the high resolution tracking cameras went into NBA arenas for the first time, and they were able to um, to to take into account all of the variables that might change the way that a hot hand is masked or disguised over the course of an NBA game. So we all know what happens when someone gets hot. They have license to take a heat check. They take longer shots, crazier shots riskier shots, shots that probably have less of a chance of going in, right? Like when Steph Curry takes a, 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 a three from 30 feet with a hand in his face, like that's not as good of a shot as a layup or probably any of the other shots that he took that gave him the confidence to shoot from there. But until very recently, until this paper came out, there was no way of controlling for that difficulty. And so what, what these guys did um, was they looked at, um, at at players after they had made a few shots in a row, and they tried to quantify the probability of a shot going in. And once they controlled for that, they found there actually is a slight hot hand effect. It's it's conservative. Um, it's it's not quite like the NBA Jam fireball of our imagination. Um, it's not that exaggerated, but um, but it's also not not real. Um, and I think that's sort of an important distinction to point out that. Um, you know, we probably don't understand this as well as we want to even now, like even almost four decades in. Um, but I think that what this paper did was show that um, we're not crazy for thinking that there is such a thing as the hot hand and letting this concept of better data and new information change our minds again, I think is really important for basketball and really just like for any type of decision that we make. For my clarity, with this sports VU study, were they saying that if using Steph Curry as an example, that if he was getting hot or he had made a couple shots and then he launched a 30 footer that he was outperforming the expected shot value for him? Yeah. Like when you compare it to his own number. Right. Yeah. Um, so so until that um, paper came along, um, if Steph Curry had taken a 35 foot shot when he was hot and he missed, it was basically treated the same as him missing a layup after making two or three shots in a row. And we all know they're not the same, right? Um, yeah. And so finally, once they were able to do that on a massive basis for like hundreds of thousands of shots over several NBA seasons, they were able to show that like you are slightly more likely um, to make your next shot after making a few in a row. I know you mentioned that the the actual theory and math behind the chances and, and what all that means isn't maybe great podcast material. We also talk about <laughs> highly detailed X's and O's. So I want to, yeah, yeah. I want to do like a, if this doesn't work, I want to, uh, we'll cut it out, but I would like to just get a quick clarity and understanding, um, of that math, because I think it makes sense for coaches to hear about it. And so my understanding, and you please correct me, it was basically within a, a string of chance. So let's say that um, in the analogy was you flip a coin three times and everybody thinks that every time you flip a coin, it's a 50% chance of heads or tails, just like I say, right. a 50% three point shooter. But when taken in a, a sequence, that anytime you look at the sequence, the chance of landing on a heads after a heads has just been landed on is actually not 50%, but closer to about 42%, is that correct? Somewhere, or, or a little bit less. 
Correct. It's less than 50%. So then when you take that into account when looking at the data of a, say, a 50% three-point shooter, it's the same thing that you would expect to see in a sequence where a 50% three-point shooter makes a shot and he would be expected to shoot under 50% in the next shot he shoots. So if he does make it again, then that is a sign of potentially a hot hand forming is that anywhere close a, to what what it's are you a very about? yes that's a very elegant explanation and um the way that i like to think of it is that um if you were to present evidence of uh, a shooter who was hot to a coach and you said this guy is a 50 percent three-point shooter if you're a 50 percent shooter and um when you are hot like when you are in the zone you make 50% of your shots, what every coach would tell you or what everybody would tell you is that, okay, well then there's no such thing as the hot hand because like you're not outperforming your own expectations or your ability. What this coin flip paper that came out a few years ago um, and it's been rubber stamped by, like it's been, it's been published in the top economics journal, it's been rubber stamped by the brightest minds in math. What this paper showed was that if you're a 50% shooter shooting 50% when you are hot, that is actually evidence for the hot hand. It had always been taken as evidence against it when in fact it was for it the whole time. So it was this really counterintuitive, delicious, kind of juicy twist to this saga. Um, and they had to change people's minds in the same way that Gilovich, Valone, and Tversky had to change people's minds 35 years ago. And in fact, they're still changing people's minds. It, 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 it kind of um, confirms what we believe, but so much had changed over 35 years that they were sort of following in their same uphill footsteps which i thought was there was kind of a cool symmetry to the the whole you know narrative journey of this one little idea that you know we probably have all taken for granted when they disproved well when they proved that the hot hand could be potential what were the what were the the naysayers what was the biggest argument against it that they were just you know just hold cold hard statistics that it just doesn't add up or what were the what were the roadblocks in the way of accepting this as truth i think there 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 were really two the first is that if you are trying to um to overturn science right or to flip it on its head like you kind of need extraordinary proof to do that and um i think it took people a while to wrap their minds around um around that math that, that we just talked about. And like, there's a reason why it's hard to describe. And it's the reason why nobody saw this statistical bias for the 35 years that people were thinking about the hot hand. It's because it's really counterintuitive and um, randomness and these types of numbers kind of paralyze our minds. Um, so, so it was hard to see for one, science takes a very long time to progress and to change people's minds. And you will, I, you know, I still have a Google alert on like every paper that um, references the hot hand that's published. And um, this, this paper about um, coin flip math was published like five or six years ago. And there are still academics and scientists and researchers who are not aware of it and don't know um, how this entire field of studies has kind of changed overnight. So um, I think it just takes a, a long time to get the word out and to change people's minds. Um, that's sort of my best guess, but it's a great question. It's one that I've thought a lot about because once you sort of read it and once you're told that it's true, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to look at the other way again. I mean, you know, the other thing is that um, even if that original paper has been overturned now, um, I do think um, there is still really profound insight from it. Um, and it's super admirable. And probably like the biggest takeaway from that first 1985 paper is still accurate, which is that 
the hot hand is not exactly what we think it is. Like you are not guaranteed to make your next shot if if you feel like you are in the zone and like you're in a flow state and like Steph Curry pulling up from 30 feet, um, you know, it, it's not going to go in even for Steph Curry, right? Not all the time anyway. And so um, that fireball image of NBA Jam is, is a yeah. little bit misleading. And I think that people our age, like we were conditioned to believe that if you make two or three shots in a row, you're going to make your next shot because of NBA Jam, right? Because that game like occupied um, so much of our minds and our quarters when we had no money. And so, um, I, I, you know, it's, 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 it's a funny thing that a paper can kind of be turned on its head and maybe um, overturned, but also still have a lot of merit to it. Um, I think um, that's sort of the case um, in, in this, in this um, example. Yeah. I, yeah. I think what you're saying is, yeah, we viewed it as like a certainty. Like you said, the fireball, like he's hot, like the next shot's going in when in reality, it's maybe a 2%, 3% incremental chance that it right. goes in. Or right. In NBA jam, if you, if you, if you were, if you were on, if you were on fire in NBA jam, you had a 95% chance of making your next shot. That's yeah. not exactly how real life works. That was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Taking this from sort of, you know, the academic world of whether or not this existed to a coaching more like real world use of the findings and what your book talks about you know we've got a lot of coaches mostly coaches listening to this podcast how can they take what your book talks about and implement it um, into their teams and their philosophy on you know what they teach um i think there are probably two ways there's there's a specific way and there's probably more of a um of a general way the specific way is that we know that the hot hand warps the behavior of everybody on the court. So it warps the behavior of the shooter, right? Because that person is going to try to shoot the next time. It warps the behavior of his teammates who are going to try to get him the ball. It warps the behavior of the other team because they're going to try to stop him. It warps the behavior of coaches who might, you know, either call a play to get that guy a shot or call timeout to cool him off a little bit. So it's this really powerful force. Um, and I think the best thing that a coach could do is to try to take advantage of that force, however they can. So sometimes that means getting that guy a shot and um, maybe, um, you know, not sending him to the bench if he pulls up from 40 feet and misses it and sort of giving him the freedom to improvise a little bit and have a little bit of fun and um, remember what it was like when you felt that way for yourself, right? Um, but also you can kind of, you could kind of exploit that person's gravity. And, um, you know, in the book, I write about the hottest game of Steph Curry's career, which I'd be happy to talk about more in a little bit. But um, one of the, one of the really remarkable things that stood out to me when I rewatched that game was that even when Steph Curry was hot, he didn't shoot every time he came down the court, the Knicks started throwing double teams at the guy and he was creating open layups for teammates because, um, you know, they, he, he was sort of sucking everybody into this black hole that he was at that time. And um, his teammates were open. Like the, the, the benefit of him being hot is that um, it actually made it easier for the people around him to score, not just for himself. Right. So, um, so I think that is one thing to keep in mind, but the broader takeaway, I think um, is, is one from, is a lesson from sort of this entire notion and this saga and story of the hot hand, which is that I think it's really important to question even our longest held assumptions and to challenge our thinking and to keep an open mind about science that seems like it's settled. We have better data coming in all the time about everything. And so the data that, um, that we have now about basketball 
wasn't available to the researchers in 1985 in their nerdiest, wildest, wonkiest dreams. It, it wasn't available to researchers in 2005 or maybe even 2015. Like we know so much more about basketball and we we're able to drill um, so deep into like every given shot. There's so much granular detail that's available. And um, I think it, it is important um, to sort of keep that ongoing evolution of the game in mind and to tailor strategies accordingly. Piggybacking on how the hot hand will warp the defense and warp the behaviors of the shooter and not only his teammates, have there been any studies or any further looks into is shooting contagious? So when Curry's on fire at, you know, and like you mentioned, the New York Knicks, were his teammates also exceeding their expected shot value? Were they incrementally better in their shooting percentages because, you know, they're seeing Curry get on fire and, you know, it, like I said, then they're having the confidence too in their shot. That's such a great question. Um, I actually don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's contagious that way. I think it would be more contagious in that um, Steph Curry is able to create open shots for his teammates that are more likely to go in when he is hot, right? So I don't know if they feel the way that he feels, but he is creating opportunities for them that they wouldn't have otherwise. And so I think if there were to be a statistical effect, um, which is sort of a great line of future researcher um, for all of the psychology and economics and statistics grad students who are listening to this podcast right now. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would love to know that because it really, it's sort of like the, the, the logical next question, right? Like, yeah. is, is that um, type of thing contagious? And is there a way to make it spread um, in one team and not to the other team, right? To follow up with what Pat was saying, Ben, I think, you know, we've probably all been on teams where you have a teammate that hits two or three in a row and then finds you and then that guy hits a shot and then the next guy hits a shot and all of a sudden there's this run from a team perspective and whether that's just because they're getting better shots because one guy's on fire so you know the quality of the shot is better or there's also this sort of thing that goes through a team when you, you loosen up and there's momentum behind what you're doing and and how that plays into you know the performance of a team and then to my question now on the other side of the coin, 2018, when you talk about streaks and run and whether or not shooting's contagious, in game seven of the Western Conference Finals, the Houston right. Rockets go miss 27 straight three-point attempts. And it was like every shot, you could tell the next guy was a little bit tight trying to shoot it and it kept getting worse and worse. So to, to Pat's point about it transferring not just to an individual, potentially a team is interesting. Well, and basketball is a funny game, right? And um, even playoff series, even seven game series, they're really small samples. And so you would think like, what are the odds of a team missing 27 straight threes? Or, you know, I, I should say out of deference to Daryl Morey that he would say it was 25 and there were two, there were two fouls thrown in there. But um, um, 27 straight threes, well, like, you know, in, in, in one game, when, when, when the entire series and really like the fate of an entire franchise um, hinges on what happens over the course of 48 minutes or even 24 minutes, like in one half, like crazy stuff can happen. And it's not out of the realm of possibility. It is funny when you think about like the cosmic and like karmic effects of this phenomenon, um, you know, there we've all seen like when a guy makes an extra pass and he gets an open shot, like you almost think that the ball should go in then, right? Because he made the right play and like the ball is finding energy and like there should be some sort of basketball God that, honors that right and um i think it's there's there, there's sort of like similar magical supernatural thinking when it comes to 
the hot hand. And um, I think that's really one of like the alluring mysteries about this whole phenomenon is that we do have numbers and we can quantify some of this, but some of it is also just unquantifiable. And like, it's one of the things that makes people crazy about this idea is that um, it, it, the numbers and the analytics sometimes clash with our, um, our experience and our reality and our eyes, right? And so, um, you know, that, that I think that's one of the fun things about thinking about this idea is that you can kind of figure out where you land on it for yourself. So you might believe that the hot hand exists in basketball, but you might walk into the golden nugget and realize this doesn't exist in roulette. And, and so um, I, I, you know, I think it's, it's really important to kind of look around your own life and see where it does exist and where it might not and where it might. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just something to keep in mind and, and fiddle around with for yourself. Going back to the Houston rocket example, or in general, you know, if you have a shooter who hasn't made a couple shots as a coach, should you continue and the Rockets continue to shoot threes or should you try to run a play for a shooter? Does this fall into the gambler's fallacy of, you know, well, it's going to regress to the mean or the next one's going in. Like, does that, does that apply to basketball as a sample size too small, as you said, or, you know, what should be a coach's strategy when it's the opposite, you can't get anything to go in, but he's your shooter. Those are the times when I'm really happy that I'm not a coach and I don't have to make those sorts of decisions. Um, I, we should probably define the gambler's fallacy first, right? So I, you know, I like to think of that gambler's fallacy as a corollary of the hot hand, sort of like the opposite of it. So um, if you if 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 you walk into a basketball arena and you see Steph Curry make three shots in a row, everybody in the arena thinks that he's making the fourth shot, right? That's the hot hand. If you walk into a casino, if you go into the Golden Nugget again and you walk to the roulette wheel and you see the ball land on red three times in a row, what most people believe research shows um, and how most people will behave is that they bet on black the next time. They bet on the streak to end, not continue. It's the opposite of what happens when we see Steph Curry make a few shots in a row. Now, the distinction there is the one of control, I think, right? When we feel that we are in um, control of our situations, when we have agency, we think a hot hand is possible. But when we recognize that we are at the mercy of chance, we take the exact opposite approach and we make our bets accordingly, literally in this case, when you're at a roulette wheel. So, um, you know, I, I don't think the gambler's fallacy really um, applies to basketball in that way. But I do think, you know, th in, in this book, I talked to this statistical physicist named Dashen Wang, who has studied um, the hot hand periods of people's careers. So not basketball, but like, just you know, artists and scientists and writers and movie directors. And he wants to know, like, are there um, hot streaks in people's lives? Like, does your best work come in bunches and are creative hits clustered? And what he says is yes, but even more interesting is that you never quite know if your hot hand period has passed or if it's awaiting you. And you know, his, his advice um, is very optimistic um, kind of naive a little bit if you think about it that way, which is that you'll never really know. Like the only way to find out is to keep going. And I think that's sort of the best way to break out of a cold streak and potentially get back to normal and maybe find a hot streak, which is to keep going. Um, we all know stories of guys who have missed like nine or 10 shots in a row. Um, and then they make a big shot in a moment when nobody expected it. In fact, um, this happened in the 2018 finals not long ago, not, at, not long after the Rockets miss. 27 threes in a row. I think Steph Curry in Cleveland and missed like 10, all 10 threes that day. And in the fourth quarter, he comes up and pulls a three in transition late in the fourth quarter. 
and makes it. And like nobody else on the planet would have the audacity to take that shot other than Steph Curry, right? Or the permission. Like, I don't know who else can take a shot like that without getting scolded by his coach. But um, the, the reason we remember that is because he missed all of those shots and then, you know, had the confidence to take that. So um, it's, it's a tricky thing, um, just in the same way that like, if a guy has made three or four shots in a row and you know that he's going to get double teamed, you give him the last shot of the game anyway. I think it all sort of depends on circumstance, which I think is, a, is, a, is an interesting way and probably a useful way of thinking about the hot hand at large. Getting back to your point about artists and things like that coming in bunches, you do mention in the book and talk about how Shakespeare wrote three of his best works during a pandemic, actually, during quarantine <laughs> um, of all times. But relaying that now to understanding our our thoughts as coaches or as managers of people on streaks, like going on a winning streak or a losing streak, knowing and talking about chance and how streaks play out, how should coaches look at, you know, if my team's on a two or three game losing streak or winning streak, either way, approaching that aspect of it? Well, I think things happen over the course of those two or three games that you can take advantage of or use, right, and exploit. So it's not just that there is a streak, but that maybe there's a streak for a reason. And maybe like you should, you should sort of be willing to, um, uh, to figure out what those reasons are and to kind of change your game plan, game plan accordingly. So, um, you know, Steph Curry getting super hot, making 11 of his 13 threes, scoring 54 points, which is the most points he's scored in a game to this day. He did it against the Knicks in Madison Square Garden in 2013. Um, it was a really odd game. It was an odd day. Like, there was nothing that would have predicted that this would be the night um, that sort of changed Steph Curry's life. But um, in that game, he played all 48 minutes, and um, he was just a walking fireball. Everything that he threw up went in. And um, it was in part because of that game, I think, um, that the Warriors kind of shifted their strategy. I mean, they had stumbled on something uh, that worked. And it became clear that the only way to really unleash Steph Curry and to empower him was to allow him to do things that nobody in the history of basketball had, had ever been able to do before. Now, I think that they were getting there anyway, and basketball would have gotten there anyway, but they got there because of that game in part. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think part of it is sort of just keeping your eyes open and recognizing what worked, even if you're lucky enough to stumble into it. Like, when Steph Curry um, sort of changes one game, you kind of let him change every game. Outside of writing this book, you also write for the Wall Street Journal as an NBA reporter. Could you maybe tell us how you got into working with the Wall Street Journal and writing for the NBA and kind of what you're doing with that right now? Sure. Um, I've been um, at the Wall Street Journal for about 10 years now. Um, I was an intern there out of college, and it was right around the time that the journal started a sports page. We had never had one before. And so um, I was kind of there when we were trying to figure out um, how it is that the Wall Street Journal would cover sports, which is a funny thing to think about because every other newspaper that you probably read has been covering sports for hundreds of years. Um, and so we had some advantages. We were new. We only had one page to fill every day. Um, and, you know, we're, we, we try to write stories that you just don't read elsewhere. I, kind of our philosophy is that if you have read the story elsewhere, we shouldn't be writing it. And it kind of forces us to forces us to look through all types of strange angles, funny stories, um, uh, data-driven stories, um, you know, investigative stories, news stories, just thinking about sports in different ways. And 
I started covering the NBA uh, in July 2014. Uh, I think it was like July 8th, which I remember because it was the day before LeBron James went back to Cleveland from Miami. And I'd covered college sports before then. And I switched to the NBA in part, I think, because my editor looked around the newsroom and realized that we did not have a full-time national NBA writer and he needed someone to write the story of LeBron going back to Cleveland <laughs> the next day. Um, so I got very lucky. Um, I kind of backed into it um, and I still have not covered an NBA finals that the Golden State Warriors did not play in. So um, it was th- it was just sort of the, the dawn of this kind of golden age of the NBA where teams were thinking very differently about how to win and you know, as you guys know, the game has changed dramatically over the course of the last six years. I mean, I think that the rate of change is so remarkable. And like, it feels like basketball has changed more in the last few years than it had in the last few decades before that, right? It's sort of being revolutionized in front of our eyes. And so um, I had this sort of front row seat to write about all of that. And it's 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 been a really fun time to write about, you know, strategies and, and um, trends across the league. Where do you see kind of the big trends or changes continuing to be made in the NBA as it, as it moves forward? It's a really good question. And it's one that I try to ask people in the NBA all the time, because it, it does seem like teams are just going to keep shooting more three pointers. Like we have not yet um, reached the upper limit of what's possible. Like we're not scraping the ceiling. In fact, a few days before the world shut down, I went to um, the MIT Sloan sports analytics conference um, in March and um, I actually was lucky enough to moderate the basketball panel there. And it was me and Zach Lowe and Tom Thibodeau and um, Haralabab Bulgaris. And I actually asked them this exact question. Like, when it's a question that I've asked literally everyone who I talked to in the NBA for years, like, how, how many threes is too many threes? Like, when do you reach the point of diminishing returns? We've seen the Rockets take more threes than twos, right? They're the first team. But the NBA looks a lot like the Rockets now. I mean, I think so far in the playoffs this year, like, 43% of field goal attempts have been three-pointers. I mean, that would have been the record for one team like three or four years ago, and now it's the average across the league. It's really crazy. And these are the best teams in the league, right? They're the ones that are left in the playoffs. And what Bob Bulgara said was was fascinating. I mean, it it's, has stuck with me for six months. He thinks that, like, we're not going to reach the upper limit until teams start taking, like, potentially 65 to 70% of their shots as threes. Now, you could do that in a whole bunch of ways, right? So I don't think um, another guy in that panel was Mike Zarin, the assistant GM for the Celtics. And what he said was that even though teams are taking a lot of threes, there's not this, there's not a um, homogeneity across the league. Like they're not all taking the same threes or doing it in the same way, um, which I think is sort of refreshing that the styles have not coalesced into one. But I do think until there is some sort of artificial rule change, until they move the line or add another line or do something that disincentivizes teams to take more of these shots that are worth one more point. Like that's how the game is going. They're going to play faster. They're going to be more possessions and the advantage is going to tilt even more toward the offense. But you guys know better. Like, do you, do you think that sounds right or am I missing something? All indications, what I read and what you're saying seem to be like, yeah, teams are going to continue to push the pace and just the value of the extra point is continuing to trump everything at this moment. Well, and the interesting thing about it is that the teams that take the most threes tend to be the teams that win the most games. Like there's yeah. a real reward for doing it. And, um, you know, I don't, uh, I, I don't really know how, why, how or why that would change. Um, 
you know, uh, other than like, you know, LeBron James, like the thing about even LeBron James, like not a great three point shooter, but the best way to win with LeBron is to build a team that prioritizes shooting around him. Like that has always been yeah. the best way to win around LeBron. So um, I think that is um, really the big strategic reckoning that the league is going to have to go through over the next few years, especially as kids trickle up and enter the NBA, like kids who have only really been playing competitive basketball in the time since Steph Curry and James Harden changed the game. Like they're used to shooting from 25 feet now and taking step back threes and doing all sorts of things that even Steph Curry was never allowed to do when he was a kid. So guys are more skilled than ever. And like, I don't think it's a coincidence that like, you know, Luka Doncic and Trey Young and you you see Jason Tatum now, or like Tyler Harrow last night, like these guys are doing things that guys just weren't allowed to do and never did until not too long ago. To add to Pat's point and your point, Ben, about the, the changes and what it means, I mean, I think for, for me what's really interesting with the way the game is going and more three-pointers, it's done a few things, right? It's it's kind of marginalized the traditional big men for sure. and what their role is. Um, and then I think it's got an interesting business impact as far as the types of te- players that teams will pay now large sums of money shooters or where they'll fit in and then also who they'll draft and who ends up making on the floor those decisions about what teams value is is what i write about a lot because you know what they value right like you can you we know what they pay these guys and like where they draft them and it's a really interesting um exercise in how teams make decisions and like what their philosophies are and what their priorities are. And I've written a lot about um, guys who were misvalued um, by colleges, by NBA teams, um, even the NBA teams that drafted them. And so that was a guy like Joe Harris, right? Um, Who, you know, thinks uh, is is in the G League, thinks that he's going to Europe at some point. And um, if he had hit free agency this summer, um, when there was a lot of money available, would have gotten paid a lot of money because of the particular skills that he has and how they fit into the NBA. Um, Duncan Robinson is another perfect example, right? Goes to Williams famously, transfers to Michigan, goes undrafted, goes to the G League, and now is starting because he happens to be one of the greatest shooters on the planet. I mean, you know, the, the Duncan Robinson story, I think, is is one of the most remarkable stories that I've come across in the NBA. And I think that people in the NBA still don't really understand how remarkable it is. I mean, like nobody there there are there are three seasons in the history of the NBA where guys have taken guys have taken like eight threes a game and made like 45% of them. One was Steph Curry in 2015 when he won the MVP. The next was Steph Curry in 2016 when he was the unanimous MVP. And the third was Duncan Robinson this season, a guy who like people in the NBA hadn't heard of when the season started. So that's crazy, right? And but but it's not just those shooters. I mean, you know, it's um a guy like Luka Mbamute, right, who was a centerpiece of those Rockets teams not too long ago. It's a guy like Lou Dort, who is like the greatest story in the NBA bubble, who was guarding James Harden, who made $38 million. Lou Dort made $155,000 this year and was a three-pointer away from like just I, – I, I, yeah. that game seven between um, the Thunder and Rockets when Lou Dort scored 30 points and like after after kind of giving James Harden everything that he could handle over the course of those seven, those he played six of the seven games, I I still don't think there's been a more entertaining basketball game in the NBA this year. There have been better games probably, but like that game was so just unforgettable because of um, 
the remarkable bargain in, in, in part that the Thunder were able to get on Dort. So um, I think value is really at the heart of every decision that NBA teams make. In fact, it's the reason why the Warriors won three of five titles. I mean, we can go through it, but like Steph Curry's bargain contract and um, the, 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 the free agency spike that allowed them to get Kevin Durant, like all of that has to do with money. And so as a basketball reporter for the Wall Street Journal, like when we look, when we talk about value and money, like you can't write about the NBA without exploring those two things. Fun question, curious question. Um, so when you when you watch a game, obviously as a fan, there's a w- way to watch a game. As you know, as a coach, you're also watching a game. As a writer, how are you watching a game? What are you seeing, or what are you trying to pick up on? Can you elaborate on that? Um, yeah, um, you know, I think every writer sort of watches it a different way based on what they like to write about and what their job is to write about. I'm looking for like people who explain what is happening on the court um, by the way that they play or um, who they are or like how they ended up in the NBA. And so, um, you know, the Duncan Robinson story, for example, like I was watching a lot of heat games earlier in the year and I just couldn't take my eyes off of him. Like he just, he, it was just like, what is this guy doing on a court and how did he get here? And so um, that I just sort of look for anomalies and oddities. Um, that That's what I like writing about anyway. I mean, I, I also have to look for a whole lot of other things, right? I mean, um, I, I am not looking so much at like X's and O's or Y, like pick and roll coverages work. Um, I think there are many better people at that um, uh, than I could possibly be. Um, but things that catch my attention. I mean, my job at the journal is, is a funny one because I have to write about basketball for people who know everything about the sport and people who know nothing about the sport. Like th- those are my best stories. The one that appeal to people who, who watch the NBA every night and people like my mom who don't read anything about the NBA. Like ideally those stories are accessible and understandable and teach both groups of people, um, something about the sport and like maybe even the world, right? Um, how values um, reflect decision-making and, and vice versa. So, um, you know, I, um, I, I, my funny job sort of forces me to watch sports in a funny way. And I'm always sort of just like looking for stories when I watch sports and, and trying to understand why the games look the way they do. I have a question for you guys before we go. Yeah. um, In the book, I write a little bit about um, the hottest basketball game of my life. I was a terrible basketball player, but um, in one quarter of one game when I was a sophomore in high school, I scored more points than I had in my entire career combined. And that memory like has lingered with me for 20 years now. Like it it just stuck with me for a very, very long time. Um, So I'm curious for both of you, like what is the hottest you've ever felt on a court or seen someone on a court? Because I'm sure you remember and I'd, I'd sort of like to hear about it. For me, it probably happened my oh, I've been probably four years ago when a game over in Germany and I, I yeah, I got hot. I had about 33, 34 points. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it sticks with you, but the biggest thing that I remember is just my mind being so clear. Like I guess you do reach this zone, but like there's just no fear that you're gonna miss. Because yeah. you believe you you believe unconsciously that you're not gonna miss, that it's it's a good shot every it's a good shot it feels good the rhythm's there and yeah that's kind of the absence of of thought is really I guess how I could explain it that I just I don't doubt I don't think about my shot I'm I'm not it's just it becomes so natural I'm catching and shooting and then it goes in and then it kind of I register like what happened so to speak 
And do you have any idea why it happened that day? <laughs> to be funny, uh, I felt horrible in the morning uh, <laughs> and thought I wasn't actually going to play. Like I only ate soup before the game uh, because my stomach was just so unsettled. And then, but again, I kind of attribute to it all the cares or all the doubts just went away because I was so concerned about like, I right. just want to get through this game. I, I feel like crap. And then all of a sudden I'm just, yeah, I'm just letting, let's say my biomechanics or the rhythm, my muscle memory take over and my mind is not interrupting anything. It's funny in the book for, um, for a chapter, I didn't actually write, but I took a trip to Las Vegas and I went to the world series of beer pong because I thought like, in what sport do your inhibitions go away the longer you play and, and the better you yeah. are? And of course, it's beer pong, right? You're drinking and your brain yeah. chemistry is literally being altered. And so um, there's like this very famous story in the World Series of Beer Pong from one of the first ones at like, you know, a decade or so ago where um, this team had this, like this epic comeback at the end of a long tournament where they were just very, very drunk and they just made an, an, an incredible number of shots in a row because they were just not thinking, right? It was like pure muscle memory yeah. and i didn't include it in the book for many reasons but whenever i hear about people thinking like talking about how they are unconscious and their brains like they feel like there's nothing there and they're just their bodies are like jello almost i always think of that trip to the world series of beer pong because it's the best way i can think of to sort of approximate that experience yeah and to kind of like yeah piggyback or jump yeah you're just like you're reacting so naturally to the situation i feel like too yeah and like like pat mentioned i, I think pat explained it really well and it it's actually really interesting, Pat, you brought up also about not feeling well and then shooting well. I, multiple times throughout my career, I felt like some of my best shooting nights where I felt most free have been days where like I feel sick. And I don't know I don't know what that is, but I don't know if your body's just relaxed a little bit more than normally. You're not as tense because you don't feel well, whatever it happens to be. I think that you guys have stumbled onto something um, interesting that I had never thought about before, which is that what if the flu game was actually just a hot hand game? Like what, what if there's a relationship yeah. between those two things? Pat, I mean, I've, I've felt it a bunch. I, when I don't yeah, feel good, for I, some reason, I shoot better. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Well, I always, I mean, I think everyone's heard the saying, and that's why, yeah, you always play better when you're sick. Yeah. You know, maybe it was because of the Michael Jordan game. Is that true? Just, I, yeah, I, I, I never, I've never heard that before. I, I heard that, yeah, growing up too. Like, yeah, well, you always play better when you're sick. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, there's always some truth in these sayings, I find. But yeah, you know, like, another study for another book uh yeah <laughs> uh ben as, as we close with you here this has been so much fun thank you for doing this um yeah. just with the hot hand from all the things that you've learned and studied how does it play out now in your life how, how are you looking at your research in what you do as a writer um, I try to remind myself that um, there probably are some instances where there is such a thing as the hot hand and to remind myself to take advantage while I can. So there are a few, not a lot, but a few um, times when as a journalist, I have felt hot, whether that was words coming pouring out of me or sources calling me back or a string of stories lining up where I just felt good. Like I felt like I was on a roll and that momentum um, was creating more momentum. Like success was begetting success. And um, I've tried to remind myself in those moments that it will not last forever. That's one thing that we know about the hot hand is that 
it runs out. And so to try to bottle that for as long as possible. So sometimes that means like not sleeping those weeks as much as I would like to, um, to try to just sort of maximize my productivity and success in that time. Because I think back on those two or three times very fondly. Um, and I wish that I could recapture that magic every day when I sit down at my keyboard, just like I wish that I could get hot again when I walked onto the basketball court, but you can't. And so you try to think about those times and to take advantage as much as you can. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.